I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles, if you have one, to the book of Exodus chapter 3 as part of our Old Testament Scripture reading. Well, I actually have two Old Testament readings this morning. Both, I think, are of great significance to considering the first petition of the Lord's Prayer. Two things I'd like us to think about as we're reading through this passage. First, uh, what it means to hallow something, or something to be hallowed, and also to consider the name of God. Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 to 15. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness, and he came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, and yet it was not consumed. Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. And the Lord said, Do not come near, take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground, is hallowed ground. The Lord said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, to bring them up out of a land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come up to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? The Lord said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, that I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. And now if you turn with me to the book of Isaiah, chapter 6, for our second Old Testament reading this morning. The first seven verses here, we are given um, a peek behind the curtain, so to speak, as we see worship in the inner sanctum, in the heavenly places Isaiah chapter 6, beginning in verse 1, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. 
which had six wings, the two he covered his with uh, with the two with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. One called to another and said, "Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory." And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth, and he said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. Now, turning with me to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, I'm sorry, chapter 6, for our New Testament reading. That model prayer that our Savior has taught us to pray, as we begin considering the first of six petitions, we'll read uh, this model prayer in its entirety, entirety, beginning in verse 9, where our Savior says to pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Let's go before the Lord now as we pray uh, that the Lord would bless His Word. Our gracious uh, God and Savior, we come uh, to you this morning uh, eager to hear the Word that you have spoken to us. We pray that your Savior, our, our Savior would speak with great clarity through your minister, uh, that the Word that is preached would accord with your infallible Word given to us in Scripture, and that your spirit would open our eyes to see these wonderful truths, that we might know how to pray, because unless you were to teach us, we wouldn't even know what to say. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, if you could have just one wish granted, what would it be? One prayer, one petition, what is it that you would ask for? I think we've all seen or read of stories in the world around us of similar situations. You think of uh, the old Disney cartoon Aladdin, the story of the genie in the bottle who grants to you just a limited number of wishes where so many would seek, if given the opportunity, to have their own lusts and desires satiated, be it money, fame, sex, or power. I think others here would hopefully choose more noble things, perhaps for the forgiveness of sins, for salvation, either for ourselves or for uh, the life of a dear loved one. Perhaps it would be the prayer to have uh, that, that shame uh, from that one particular sin or series of sins that you engaged in in your younger years, that that sense of shame would finally, once and for all, be wiped away. Perhaps you'd ask for the power to withstand temptation, or maybe the assurance of God's love. These are all good prayers, petitions. Not the money, sex, fame, and power. 
But these other things, they're, they're good ones. But again, if we were to ask for one thing, what would stand at the top of your list? David himself answers this question in the 27th Psalm. He says, there's one thing that I've asked of the Lord. One thing. To gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and the splendor of holiness. This morning, we turn our attention to the first petition of this model prayer that our Savior teaches us to pray. That first petition is this, hallowed be your name. And I think the placing of this petition is significant. As our Savior teaches us, that before we come boldly to hurl our requests and pleas for grace, we must first come boldly to worship the God of grace. That standing at the top of our prayers, before all else, is that the name of God would be set apart and sanctified and treated with the dignity that it deserves. There's two items I'd like us to consider this morning. First, I would like us to consider the name. And secondly, I'd like us to consider hallowing the name. So two things, the name, and then what it means to hallow the name of God. I think for all of you who are parents, I want you to look back and recall the conversation or conversations that you had with your spouse uh, when it came time to naming your first child. Perhaps it was uh, a conversation that was quick and easy, one full of immediate joy where everyone, where both of y'all saw eye to eye on what your first child should be named. And perhaps that naming process took a little bit longer. What did you name him or her? Why did you name your daughter what you did? Why did you name her Emma and not Jessica? Why was he named Jim Bob? and not something more dignified. It might have been for aesthetic purposes. I remember, here I've been told the story a number of times that my dad wanted to name me Eldred after his father, to which my grandmother uh, told my dad, please don't do that to the poor boy. I actually really like the name Eldred, uh, but I, of course, would look like a 90-year-old man uh, the day I was born. Uh, many of us, of course, were likely named for more significant reasons. Perhaps you were named by a beloved family member. There is a, a, a name that runs commonly through the family. It might be John or Richard or Sam. Uh, you might be a junior or Jim Bob the third. You know, I was named after my dad's brother, a man who is very special to my father. And still for others, you perhaps named your child after what that name actually meant. And how fitting, you know, just looking and thinking through the names of the, the people in this congregation how fitting is it to have uh, the Lundies in this congregation with a name like Zach and Samantha, a name, two names that mean what God has remembered and God has heard. Think about how in the Lord's providence, the Lord bringing those two people together, those two names, that in a, in a sense summarizes the story of Israel and her redemption from Egypt. That the Lord himself has remembered the cries of his people and he has heard. See, names are significant. They're significant for a number of reasons, and we see that most certainly in the Bible. They give shape to one's identity and character. You think what happens in Genesis 3, the very, or Genesis 2, I'm sorry, where the very first thing 
uh, that the Lord uh, commands Adam to do is to name the animals. Not just the animals. When his bride is finally presented before him, he is given the great task of naming her as well. And what does he name her? He, names, he gives her a name that accords with her calling. As your name shall be Eve. A name that sounds in Hebrew like the word for living because what? She is the mother of all living things. You think of Abram who is called the father of many. It's a name that is bound up with his destiny. The very story of his whole life. Or the name of Isaac. A name that means laughter. It's almost a twofold meaning. There's a, a certain irony there because when Sarah is first told that she'll have a child within the year, she laughs because she doesn't believe. And yet when it does come to pass, she laughs because of all the joy that her son brings to her. You think of David, a name that means beloved, and that is the man who is appointed to be God's royal son, his beloved son in whom he is well pleased. You think of Jesus, that name above all names, that coming from that word Yeshua that means what? Yahweh saves. Is there a name more fitting that gives shape to the character and identity of an individual? And so we see that a name signifies somebody's character, at least in the Bible. But we also find that when it comes to talking about the name of somebody, their reputation and renown is bound up with it. You think of what the Lord says to Abram in Genesis 12, follow me and I will make your name great. The Lord is not saying that he will plaster Abram's name on a Microsoft Word document in a larger font setting. Rather, he is saying he will make Abram's renown, his reputation, magnificent. Alternatively, think of what it means to drag someone's name through the mud. To tarnish, it means to soil a man's reputation. It's not just the character and identity of a person. It's not just the reputation that's bound up with the name. It's also the authority. How does every cop show transpire? Every cop show in the history of the human race. There's some moment in the episode where the culprit is on the run and the police officer pulls out his gun and he shouts what? Stop in the name of the law. He's speaking of the authority that stands behind the badge that he is wearing. We see the same idea in Exodus 5 where the Lord sends Moses as God's representative to speak to Pharaoh as the Lord says, you are to speak in my name. I think all three of these features are important when it comes to considering the name of God, his identity, his renown, his authority. We see all of these bound up here in our Old Testament reading we had this morning, Exodus 3, where we find two features that form the first petition to this story. The first is this, as Moses is walking through the wilderness and he sees the unburning bush, he draws near, he says, what is this? And what does the voice that he hears speak say? Stop. Stop right where you are. Don't soil the ground with your shoes because the place where you're standing is hallowed ground. It is holy. It's been set apart. It's sanctified. Something about this particular place 
that Moses is standing has made it distinct from the common ground that exists elsewhere. And it turns out what makes it different is that the Lord is present quite visibly before Moses. And now as the Lord sets apart Moses and he calls him and commissions him as his prophet, as his spokesman, as the redeemer of Israel, he says, I'm sending you back to the land you have run away from to deliver my people from bondage. And, and Moses turns to the Lord and he says, well, when the people ask who you are, they're going to ask, what is your name? What should I tell them? And so the Lord reveals his name, his identity to Moses. He says, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am who I am. How significant it is that the Lord says and declares that that is his name. In other words, when he says, I am who I am, he is not a being that is defined in relationship to another. Here is one whose identity is not contingent upon anyone or anything else. No one has named him. He has named himself, as it were. He has not received his identity. He has not received his authority from another. He simply is who he is. You know, we receive our names from somebody else. Our parents name us. He has received his name from nobody. Nobody else. If we hold any measure of authority either in the workplace or in the home or in the church or in the state, it is because that authority has been granted to us by another but not so with God. His authority is self-derived. His name is, as it were, self-named, if we can put it like that. Nobody has identified, nobody has been the one to name him. He is who he is. He defines who he is in relation to himself, and it's not contingent upon the rest of creation. If I am called a, 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 a son it's because I am standing in relationship to my father who lives 3,000 miles away or my mother who lives 3,000 miles away. If I am called a pastor, my, that, that naming of that office and that title to which I have been called is one because it describes my relationship to you. But when the Lord says to Moses, this is my name, I am who I am, he is calling upon Moses to consider who the Lord is in himself as he stands distinct and apart from the rest of his creation, wholly independent, in need of nothing. Older theologians would use that word of aseity, that he is who he is in himself. He is the independent one, in whom is found the fullness of life, and yet is not contingent upon another for life or authority. And yet, even here, how remarkable is this story, even as the Lord declares himself to be the independent one, the say being he who is who he is. The one who stands utterly transcendent above his creation, he says. 
I have heard the cries of my people, and I have come to save. Though he did not need to, though there is nothing that we can add to his glory or to his name, he he has stooped to show tender compassion and care. I think this particular moment in redemptive history, here in Exodus chapter 3, gives hints at what is entailed in the first petition. To pray, hallowed be thy name, brings into view two of the most striking features of this narrative. In other words, what we see here, when we pray this petition, O Lord, our our gracious God and Father, hallowed be your name. This is not a simple prayer for a hushed reverence to a generic deity. I remember I used to teach high school, and we would have these uh, annual graduation dinners for our high school students and for their parents to come. And it, was a, it wasn't a Christian school, but it was a, a private school, so most people came from somewhat religious backgrounds, um, uh, be it uh, Christianity or Islam or, or, uh, or, or Judaism. And, of course, what they would do right before the start of the meal is they would have a, a time of silent prayer for everyone to pray to, quote-unquote, God, as if we are all praying to the same deity. And then they would have somebody come up and give a very generic prayer for the blessing of the food that would somehow make every deity happy, as if that were possible. That's not what is going on here. When we are to pray that God's name would be sanctified, it's an invocation of a very specific deity. The one true and living God. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the one who is not confused with creation, uh, the one who does not stand co-eternal with creation, but the one who has made the heavens and the earth by an almighty decree of his divine will simply because he delighted to do so. The one who is who he is. He is the Holy One of Israel, and he is the one who is to be reverenced and adored. And there is none other. So right away, right out of the gate, the very first petition is going to offend quite a number of people. Because in Scripture, the name of God becomes quite significant. In Exodus chapter 33, as as Moses has been standing and communing with the Lord for 40 days and 40 nights upon the mountain, Moses says, O Lord, I have but one request to ask. Show me your glory. The Lord says, no. That's got to hurt. The Lord says, no, you, no, but no man can see me and live. If you see me, you will die. But this is what I'll do. I'm going to hide you in the cleft of the rock. I'm going to cover your face with my own hand, as it were. And I'm going to cause my goodness to pass before you. And as my goodness passes before you, I am going to proclaim my name. Though man is not able to see the Lord who is spirit, yet God has stooped to make the proclamation of his name and his goodness the very means by which we behold his glory. That's why you will never see images of God in a Christian church. At least not a Christian church that understands what is transpiring here. God is not one who is bound or defined or described by visuals. 
As the Lord will say to Israel at Sinai, when, when, when you approached and you heard uh, the, the rumblings and the thundering, you saw no form. Therefore, you will have no graven images of me, but rather, what will there be the proclamation of? The proclamation of my goodness that is bound up with my name. Everything that stands behind the name of he who is I am reminds us and is with us is the very means by which he bestows his glory on a sinful yet redeemed people. Later on when the temple is built, it is said to become the place of his name. He places his name in the temple. Again, signifying the very presence of God. See, I think what's, what's transpiring here, and this is some of the Old Testament takes, goes to great pains to emphasize is that God's name is not something that is to be treated lightly, therefore. There is a certain gravitas. There is a weightiness to God's name that is not to be treated with... It's not to be treated as just another common word. Again, think of the picture of Moses standing before the burning bush. He's not even supposed to have his shoes dirty the soil. Same thing when it comes to speaking God's name. We are to treat it with utmost reverence and significance. It is to be hallowed. There's a proper weightiness that is owed to the name of God as it signifies all that He is in Himself. As His name signifies how He relates to the world and the works He has made. Be it in creation, be it in providence, or be it in redemption. To contemplate God in all of his wonderful works is no light matter. It is no laughing thing. In Isaiah 6, we are given a proper glimpse of what it looks like to worship the Lord with such gravitas. As not even the sinless angels in heaven are able to gaze directly on God's resplendent majesty. The seraphim, six-winged, Two wings covering their feet. Isn't that, isn't that interesting? I don't know what to do with that. They're covering their feet, just as Moses was to not have his feet soil the, the place of God's dwelling. Even here, the seraphim's feet are covered, but also another pair of wings covers their face. They're not able to behold the majesty directly, and they're not even sinners. It's simply because they're finite beings that they're not worthy to behold the face of God. And certainly it's true for Isaiah, who is sinful. And as he stands in the presence of God, as he has given this vision of the Lord enthroned on high, he is led to despair as his own sinful heart is exposed before him. And he recognizes, though he is a prophet, perhaps even a priest, what a profane man he is. He says, I'm, I'm undone. I don't know what to do. I'm a man of unclean lips. And yet, once again, the Holy One of Israel, the transcendent God, He who is I am, once more stoops. And He sends an angel to purify His corrupt tongue through sacrifice from the coals of the altar that Isaiah might join in the heavenly chorus singing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of the armies, the Lord of hosts. The whole earth radiates. It's full of His glory. Isn't this how the Bible itself ends? Book of Revelation. Now with every tongue, tribe, and nation joining with that heavenly chorus, 
proclaiming the holiness of God. And isn't it striking that when the incarnate God appears, that the demons are said to flee at the very mention of His name? It is at the name of Jesus that they are cast out. It is by His name that the lame leap. It is by His name that the deaf hear. It is by His name that the blind see. It is by His name and by His authority that the storms are hushed. And it is by His name that our fears are put to rest. It is even said that on the last day that every knee in heaven and earth and under the earth will bow down at the name of Jesus. Again, that name signifying everything who Christ is for us and for our salvation. How sweet the name of Jesus sounds in the believer's ear. It soothes our sorrows, it heals our wounds, and drives away our fear, John Newton wrote. It makes the wounded spirit whole, the name calms the troubled breast. The name of Christ is manna to the hungry soul and to the weary. His name brings rest. And so when we speak of the name of God, what we mean is this. That the name signifies and summarizes all of God's attributes and works. This is why the titles as part of God's revelation are so significant. It reveals His character. It reveals His authority. It reveals His dignity. His name is no laughing matter. It is no trivial thing, and so we ought to treat it with the weightiness that it deserves. And so it leads us to our second point, the matter of hallowing the name of God. We hear the word hallow. It's an older word. We don't use it that much. Probably the only time one might hear it is in October when one speaks of Halloween. Where images popularly, uh, immediately pop up and uh, arise in our minds of conjured ghosts or goblins, I think is rather unfortunate. But it's simply an adjectival form of the word holiness. It means to consecrate, to set apart, to distinguish from that which is uncommon. To, uh, to, to render God's name as holy, to hallow His name, does not mean that God's name is somehow dirty and we have to make it clean. Rather, it simply means that because God is holy, we are to treat it with the holiness that that name deserves. We see some of this even in Genesis 1, where the Lord comes and He, makes, uh, and, and he separates the light from the darkness, the, uh, the, the sky from the sea, the dry land from the sea. Those, when it says He separates those things, it's that root word in the Hebrew where we get the word for to distinguish. It's the very thing that the priests in Leviticus are commanded to do when they were told they must learn to distinguish, to make that proper separation between what is clean and what is unclean. And that's what we see going on here. That we are to treat the name of God with the, as something that is holy. We are not to bear that name in vain. We are not to treat it flippantly. We are to not treat God's character, His works, His reputation, His authority as a laughing matter. Like Moses before the burning bush, we are to treat the name of God and everything that name signifies as something to be hallowed. We are to honor His name. Thomas Watson, the great Puritan, says we are to treat it as a precious jewel. 
It is not to be blasphemed or trampled as some common slang term or curse word. We are called to adore His name, not in some heartless boast as if we sing the praises of God unthinkingly, heartlessly. Rather, when we sing the praises of God, we are to do so with a heartfelt enjoyment. When we call upon God, this first petition reminds us that our first prayer is for the adoration and sanctity of God's name. What is the chief end of man? Above everything else, what is man designed to do? He has been designed to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. It might not be a laughing matter. It might not be a light thing. But it is a joyful thing. That the gravity of God's name brings such delight. You, you think of the end of the Second World War. Victory in Europe Day. You think of the joy that that, that brought. And for, for years after, uh, when people would commemorate the end of the, the war, be it on the European theater or in the Pacific. It's, it's a day of commemoration and joy. There is laughter, but it is not this, this fleeting laughter of, of mockery or treating it lightly. It's a joy that the powers of darkness have finally been overthrown. And that's what's being brought into view here, that we are to hallow God's name, and that there is a real joy, but is a joy with gravitas. There's a weightiness, as Lewis, C.S. Lewis will write, of the, the weight of glory. There's a heaviness to it. We are to give to the Lord the cream de la creme of our love, the very best, the very best. With an ardent fervor as boiling water, our affections are to spill over into our duties. That is why we're to love the Lord with our whole heart, that it, it becomes the engine that drives all of our thoughts, all of our actions, all of our do, uh, doings, all of our conversations. It means that when we treat His name and speak of His name, we do so with reverence and bated breath. I think it runs so contrary to the vapid nature of contemporary worship. The music and so much that we find around us doesn't really recognize the weightiness of what it is that we are doing. And I'm not speaking of what type of instruments should be played or, or anything like that. I, I simply want to just say this as a principle, that the music that is sung must reflect the gravity of the words that are sung and the object of our adoration. To hallow God's name means to put His name in its proper place. That this first petition becomes, as it were, our prime petition. That the reverence of His name becomes more important than our own names. That the reverence of His name becomes more important than even the restoration of our own health. I think it's only when we grasp this that we can with Job worship as he did. When Job would say, though the Lord slay me, yet will I continue to trust Him. It shows where Job's chief priority lay. The reverence of God's name, despite everything that has befallen him. Here is a petition that causes us to cast off those false and fleeting notions of God as the mystical vending machine 
or the supernatural Santa Claus. Here is a petition that leads us to discard our hand grenade prayers and fall down before the throne of grace to treasure the greatest gift of all, that the one who gives these wonderful gifts is the greatest gift. He is himself the great gift giver. He is the fountain of every blessing, and the fount is of greater value than even the blessings that flow from his hand. Here is a petition that leads us beside still waters and causes us to stop, that we might drink deeply from the fountains of his deep delights, that we would come to know that he is the source of all that is good, that there is none greater, for he is goodness itself. It is the prayer that says, one day in your courts, O Lord, is better than a thousand elsewhere, for there's nowhere else that I would rather be. Even as the sparrow finds her home on your altar to be consumed in the fire, so here I have come to lay myself before you as a living sacrifice and devote my life to you in all that I am, in all that I do, in body and in soul, in life or in death, I am yours. My only request is that whatever happens, whatever befalls by the end of the day, that your name would be hallowed in my thoughts and actions. Here is a petition that regulates not only our prayer, but our conduct. It teaches to live our lives in accordance with our prayers. Here is the the great mirror to our hearts as it gives shape to causing us to evaluate what is our chief concern. What is our driving passion? Here is a petition that gives shape even to our notions of church discipline. Though our immediate concern when one of our brothers or sisters falls, though one of our immediate concerns is the restoration of the offender and even the peace and purity of the church, our chief concern in those matters still regards more significantly the vindication of Christ's honor and His name that His name would be hallowed and treated as something significant among the redeemed. Therefore, because God is holy, as Peter says, quoting Leviticus to the New Testament church, be holy, for I am holy. This first petition is evangelical in its outlook as it, as it longs for the nations to see God for who He truly is. Isn't that really what this prayer is about? Because we're not here to add to God's holiness. It's not as if we could somehow make God more holy or His name more renowned. We're simply declaring to be what is, is. <laughs> what, what the truth really is. And it, it shouldn't be our delight when we pray, hallowed be your name. The question is, who should be doing it? As we confess together with the shorter catechism, not just us, but for everyone else as well. To have them look and see that this God is not like the pagan gods that you've been raised to believe in. Here is one who is far better. And only the nations will come to know it through the way in which the church treats the name of God. Amidst a world that treats God's name as a curse, rather than the supreme blessedness that that name represents, The Christian child is to pray, let the nations be glad and sing for joy at the sound of your name. And so this first petition is ultimately not only evangelical, not only character shaping, it is ultimately doxological. 
It is a prayer of adoration. Here is that prayer that transforms shallow obedience and shatters a hollow legalism. Gerhardus Voss, one of my favorite theologians, has this wonderful quote. We heard somebody say it this weekend at Presbytery. Legalism might obey, okay, but it doesn't adore. And isn't that the difference between a heartfelt obedience and legalism? Where you just look at the rules and say, okay, yeah, I'll do it. But there's no adoration. What, what the Lord is calling for is from our innermost being that we love Him with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. And just as the first commandment teaches us that, so here also the first petition. That to hallow God's name is to adore it and to adorn it with gladness. That when we pray, hallowed be your name, we are asking that the world would see God for who he is and that they would fall down and join in the assembly of the saints and the angels and sing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. That just as the angels worship God in heaven as we read in Isaiah 6, our prayer is that this too would become the song of the nations here on earth. And how significant is it that just as God revealed His name to Moses as the great I Am, that declared how distinct He was from the rest of creation, that now through the gospel, He has revealed Himself more fully by giving us His personal name, as Father, Son, and Spirit. If under the Old Covenant He declared to his people who he was apart from creation. Here in the gospel, he declares to us and reveals to us who he is in himself. That he eternally subsists distinct from creation as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And it is through Christ that he has revealed his name most fully and he shows to us his very heart. And guess what happens in our baptism? He is said to place his name upon us. Isn't that the Great Commission? That we are baptized, not into the names, plural, but into the name of Father, Son, and Spirit. Whereas the temple under the Old Covenant was said to be the resting place of God's name, now you, child of God, are declared to be the one who bears the name of God. And you should not treat this as a light thing. Now you have become His dwelling place. And so when we pray for him to hallow his name, we pray that he would hallow the place where he has set his name. That we would not treat our lives or even our bodies as a common thing. To be treated and bandied about in various sinful pleasures and endeavors. We see this not just in our baptism, but in our benediction. Every Lord's Day we hear uh, the uh, ironic not ironic, the ironic benediction of Numbers 6. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord cause His face to shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you His peace. We are familiar with that blessing. But what does the Lord say in the immediate verse? In verse 27, He says that in giving the blessing, so shall they put My name upon My people and I will bless them. The Lord has delighted to place His name upon you. And it is our duty to treat it with the reverence it deserves. 
For he has sworn by that very thing against which there stands nothing greater to be sworn by. He has sworn by his name that we might flee to him for refuge and have strong medicine and that strong consolation needed to hold fast to him in the midst of trial and temptation. That just as the saints of old had prayed for the sake of your name, deliver us, so now we pray and begin our prayers with the adoration of his name. And upon that come, pleading that he would on the basis of his name provide for us all that he has promised and everything that we need for life and for godliness. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, we pray that you would grant us the ability to treat your name with the reverence it deserves. No one here has the vocabulary to offer the praise that truly is due to you. But we pray that our lives and mouths, insofar as we are able to as finite creatures, that we would offer heartfelt obedience to you by the power of your Spirit, and that through our lives and our actions, your name would be treated as holy, that the nations might see and join in the chorus of the song of redemption and be glad. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.